Now, as uh, Samuel was reminding us earlier on, um, we're continuing this series on Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, we just, as you know, had our very first introduction uh, last Sunday evening. We based it on the reading that Samuel gave on, on Luke ch- chapter 24, when the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, opened the scriptures. He began at Moses and all the prophets, and he spoke to them about the things concerning himself. Now, we're told in Luke chapter 24 that the distance between the village of Emmaus and Jerusalem was seven miles. So we're going to probably uh, focus on the first few meters of that journey uh, today. Because if he started at Moses and then went on to the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament, Undoubtedly, the place where he started off, I would have thought, would have been in Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and try and follow on. They talk about being a fly on the wall. I think it would be a, a fly on the cloak of uh, a couple of, these, uh, of this couple who listened and whose heart burned within them at the end of it as they listened to this wonderful description of the Old Testament where Christ is, is revealed. So we're really thinking about one aspect of this in particular tonight. We're just taking it uh, one particular subject, and it is Christ in creation. Christ in creation. And uh, I want you to be an active uh, audience tonight. And what I mean by that is that I have a number of scriptures. We've had some of them read to us. But uh, I'm going to turn you to a number of scriptures where we can search this out, as the Lord Jesus was doing with this couple, so that we can see for ourselves where Christ is found as far as this particular subject uh, is, is concerned. Um, I think when we come to a subject like that, there, there always is a degree of caution that we have to exercise. Um, somebody used to say, you know, wonderful things in the Bible I see some put there by you, and some put there by me. Uh, Meaning that sometimes people have allowed their imagination to run riot, you know, and they've come up with weird and wonderful uh, things that really are not there at all. And what we're going to try and do, obviously, is that we're going to try and ground all of this in the Scripture so that we can see that the Old Testament is opened up to us by the New Testament, and both are interconnected and related. So let's turn to... I mean, there's something actually quite special, isn't there, about opening your Bible and, and turning to the very first words of God's revelation to us. And, and that's what we have, of course, in Genesis 1. So let me just read a couple of the verses, um, and we'll make some comments on this passage, and then we'll move on to, to the next few ones I have. There's about four or five uh, in total. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So this is the creation of the, of the entire universe by God. 
We mustn't think when we read that first sentence, he created the heavens and the earth, that it just means the sky above the earth. It refers to everything, the entire universe. You know, our solar system as well as all the other ones that exist, absolutely everything was, was created by God. And of course, the key phrase that is repeated all the way down the passage, uh, which you see a number of times, is that God said, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be got, and so forth. And so what we have is God's creative word. Now, what does that mean? Well, just to build the whole thing up, we have to notice, first of all, that although God's name is mentioned singularly here, that we are given further insight into the complexity of this. So, for instance, we go down to verse number 28, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God, singular, created man in his own image. And so you have this idea of singularity and yet plurality. And that is developed further when we look down at uh, verse number 2 again, where it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God, singular, yet plural. God, the Spirit of God. And God said, the Word of God. It's only when we come to our New Testament that we get a little bit more insight, of course, into the meaning of that. And, of course, what I'm, I'm talking about now, and I'm going to get you to turn to it, is John's Gospel, chapter 1. Because we learn that it is not just the actual voice of God that we're talking about in creation, that it is the second member of the Godhead. It is Christ himself who is being referred to because his title, according to John, is the Word of God in the beginning. Not at the beginning, but he was already there at the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word. And he's referred to as the Word because he reveals God and because he is the creative personality and the agent that develops the entire universe, heaven and earth. Because it says the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And of course we know who this is because we come down to verse number 14 of John chapter 1, and it says that the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And we might not re recognize it if we were just to read Genesis 1 on its own for the first time, but as we get to know our Bibles, as we read the New Testament in particular, we are getting greater insight, and we are understanding that when Genesis 1 reads the way it does, it is actually informing us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the active agent of creation. And interestingly, we see 
almost cameos of this in the gospel records, the power of the word of Christ. You know, the centurion whose servant is sick, just say the word. And when he was healed, they made an inquiry. At what time did Jesus say that yesterday? It was at that time, and that's when my servant was healed. Or upon the Sea of Galilee, when there's the great storm, and with a word he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace be still. The power of the creatorial word of, of Christ. So that's, that's Genesis. And further insight is given to us when we now turn to the book of Colossians and chapter 1. I'd like you to turn there with me. And this is, this is a wonderful passage that gives us additional understanding. Let me read it to you from verse 15, where it says about the Lord Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let me just stop there. Some people who meet, you know, a couple of hundred yards around the corner from here will point, point to this verse uh, and say that, aha, this means that Christ was part of the creation. Not that he was the creator. He was the first to be created. He was the firstborn of all creation. Now let's just pause uh, because there's a little bit of further uh, reading we have to do here um, which plainly f flies in the face of that comment because it says that all things, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 16. So if everything was created by him, how could he be part of that? That's one point. The second point is this, that the title firstborn is actually, it's not, a, it's not really a word that describes chronology. It's a word that describes position and status. You're the firstborn. It's talking about priority. It's talking about importance. And so, for instance, uh, if you look at the end of verse number 18, it says that in everything he might be preeminent. It's talking about the preeminence of Christ. And again, if you look at verse 18, it's talking now about the church. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There it is again, from the dead. Now, Christ wasn't the first to rise from the dead. Lazarus was, you know, there were other people, some of whom Christ himself raised from the dead, but he's the firstborn in the idea of preeminence and importance and superiority. So just let us realize that when it talks about him being the firstborn over all creation, that it is status and rank that is being expressed. So it says, if we go back to a reading, we're now at verse 16, for by him... All things were created. Everything. You know, let's just kind of get it out there as far as the whole thing about evolution is concerned. Uh, scripture is very clear uh, about Christ creating everything. Now, that includes invisible things as, vi as well as visible things. So the material universe, the physical universe, the things that we can touch and measure and all, all the rest of it, but also invisible things. So that would include, for instance, angels. And I think that's partly what is meant where it says, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Some people argue that these are different ranks and positions of angelic beings. They hold different positions, like Michael is an archangel. You get straightforward angels, you know. Maybe there's lieutenants and sergeants and whatever. But there are thrones and dominions. Christ created the, the angels before the creation of the physical world. He was involved in the creation of invisible things. And it also means that he creates invisible authority. So there are principles in our world. There are dimensions to, to how we live our lives. The whole idea of authority, for instance. He's the creator of these structures and these institutions that are invisible and are not physical material things. Now it says that it was by him that all these things were created. But it also says something else at the end of verse 16. It says that not only were they created by him, but all things were created through him and also for him. So what does that mean? Well, I think the idea of, of through him is that not only was he the physical creator, the actual creator, but he was the architect and he was the designer. In the same way as, you know, some building or road actually might be, be built by the construction workers, but there were a whole host of other people that were involved in that project and planning it and in designing it, as well as the construction of it. Everything was done through Christ at every level. And it was for him. And there's two points here. And it's, first of all, that it's for his glory. You know, that includes you and me, of course. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we have to do it for the glory of God. That, that is why we were made it's our chief end, as the Westminster Catechism says. It's to glorify God. Why am I here? What's the point? It is for Him, because everything was made for Him, which includes me and it includes you. You're made for Him. And that's where the great big quotation from Augustine comes in. You know, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're made for him. And that's why people live, unfortunately, such unhappy and dissatisfied lives, because they're not living for the glory of God. Okay? But there's another point, I think. It was made for him. The world was made, and we'll come to this later on, the world was made almost as the platform for Christ's redemptive work. Well, that's the reason he made it. So that one day he would step onto the stage of the world that he had created to bring about this profound, this, this vast work of redemption that would be such a, a crucial thing in the new creation of the heavens and the earth. So we have, we have these three points about his creation. And it says at the end of verse 17, all in him, 
all things hold together. Everything consists in Christ. So that means that it's not so much that Christ, you know, wound up the clock and just let it tick. That he formed this world and then just stood back from it and left things alone. Everything holds together in Christ. He is the sustainer of our universe, which means that he has an ongoing and an active involvement in his creation, which includes us. You remember Daniel, when he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, made that point, uh, to Belshazzar rather, made that point when he says, you know, the God in whose hand your breath is. You know, and that's true. I mean, all the things that just happen as far as the physiology you know, of our, of our lives are concerned, all the synapses in our brain, you know, all the circulation of our blood cells, everything that goes on, the breath that, you know, uh, dissolves in, in, into our lungs, everything is held there and sustained by God's ongoing, active, present-day involvement, sustaining His creation. We learn that from this passage here in Colossians about our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in this passage here, he's talking about another kind of creation as well in Colossians. When he goes on in verse number 18 uh, down uh, to the end of 23, he talks about the new birth, the new creation, when he forms again in people who have been alienated and hostile in their minds, verse 21, by their evil deeds, he reconciles them now through his sacrifice to God. And, and that's a new creation, different dimension. There is a fact that, you know, it's not just that we look back to Genesis chapter 1, by the way, to see God's creation. God still creates. Every day, there are new creations that are made. You know, you could turn to Psalm 139, where it talks about us being fearfully and wonderfully made, about how God knits us together in our mother's womb. And every birth, every conception, is a brand new work of creation that Christ is actively involved with. And it's almost as if the potter every day is still bending over the clay and forming it and fashioning it as he wants it to be done. You must recognize that. That's why abortion is such a terrible thing. You know, it's destroying an active new work of specific creation that Christ has labored over himself. So now we're going to look at a slightly different dimension. We're bearing in mind from, from Genesis, which has been our kind of launch pad, Christ is the active agent of, of God's creation. He is the Word. But also, it's good for us to just see the pleasure of God at this time. You know, all the way through it, it was good. You know, this, this was very good. And, and you see the, the whole sense of that when you come into chapter 2 in particular, when Adam 
is created, different from the rest of the creation. When Christ kneels down over the dust of the ground and he forms Adam and uh, almost like resuscitation in reverse, his mouth to Adam's mouth, breathing in the breath of life. And Adam becomes a living soul. And the pleasure that Christ takes in walking with Adam and in his company and in fellowship with him, it's good. It's very good. Until sin, of course, comes in and and destroys that friendship. And that's really where uh, I wanted us to go as we consider the reading that we had from the book of Proverbs. Would you turn uh, to that chapter again? Proverbs chapter 8. The book of Proverbs, as you know, um, really has, has got to do with the contrast, by and large, between the wisdom of God and folly, foolishness. And in this passage here, wisdom is personified. And we read about wisdom, but this is a messianic passage. It's talking, there's, a, there's a sense when you can read that and you think, oh, he's talking about wisdom. But it goes deeper than that. It is ultimately personified in the person of Christ. So let me in particular point out this idea of, of the pleasure and the joy in creation that is expressed here. It's good. It's very good. So, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his word, verse 22. Um, And if you come down, um, for instance, to verse 29, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. And so what we have here is two things. We have the joy of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, the joy of the Godhead, in what is happening here, and in each other, the wonderful eternal fellowship of the, of the triune God. And also, verse number 31, I was rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Oh, the joy that God had, delighting in Adam. The man made in his image, made in a way completely different from the animals and the rest of the creation. The glory the top stone of God's creation, delighting in his company. And when you think about this, it brings into sharp relief the disaster of the fall when all of that is lost because of of sin. Now there's something else I want us to do at this point for the rest of the time that's at your disposal. I'm going to rewind the clock from Genesis 1. We're going back further to that chapter that's before Genesis 1. I'm not talking about the kind of preface of the translators, but Scripture gives us insight, of course, into what happened before Genesis chapter 1 
verse 1. And what we're doing here is, in particular, we're thinking about the sufferings of Christ. Now, if we were being entirely accurate and looking at Luke chapter 24, we, we perhaps just wouldn't have called our series Christ in the Old Testament. All right? That's not strictly speaking accurate. Because if you read carefully down Luke chapter 24, the whole point is not that Christ is seen in the Old Testament, but it's that the sufferings of Christ are seen in the Old Testament. That's why they were despondent. They were downcast. You know, he, we thought he was going to be the, 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 the savior of Israel, but he's gone now. Didn't you know that he had to suffer? And it was going to Moses and all the scriptures that he showed them how the Christ had to suffer. And so it's the sufferings of Christ in particular that are highlighted in the Old Testament and give us such hope. So I have a couple of uh, passages here just to help us grasp that. Um, So the first one is in Ephesians chapter 1. The New Testament opens up the Old Testament for us. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before Genesis 1. Before the foundation of the world took place. And what does it say? That God chose us in Christ before the foundation. Now, these are massive points. Who can get their heads round about this completely? The fact, as the, the old hymn puts it, before God's hands had, fought, had made the sun to rule the day, or earth's foundation laid, or fashioned Adam's clay, what thoughts of love and mercy flowed in thy great heart of love, O God. Now, try and, try and just think about this. Before the world was founded, God set his love upon you, child of God. God chose you, not for anything good in you. How could it have been? You didn't, in a sense, even exist then. But you existed in the eye of God who is beyond time and beyond space, and surpasses everything. And God in his marvelous sovereignty, and as far as his purposes are concerned, had a plan that included you and me to be in Christ and to be holy, even before the founding of this world. Now, there are certain implications to that. Certain implications to that. And I want, that, I want you now to, to, to turn to Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's famous sermon on the, on the day of Pentecost. And this is what he says as part of that. In verse 23 uh, of Acts 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Now, there, there are two points here. Uh, the first point is this, that we talk about God's electing choice and his sovereignty. And, and we think, well, does that just talk about some sort of fatalism? You know, everything's kind of determined and, you know, we, we don't have any kind of part in that. We're not responsible for anything. Well, no, that is not the case. Our minds can't put all of that together. But these verses here, verse 23, very clearly puts two things together. It talks on the one hand about God's definite plan and his foreknowledge as far as Christ's death is concerned. But in addition to that, it says, you crucified by the hands of wicked men. And so the people are accused of that and they're responsible and they're they're guilty for that. They have a role in that. And so both things are taught together in Scripture. God's purposes, God's sovereignty, and yet I will still be accountable for my actions and my decisions, my thoughts. And so we have these things here together. Second point is this, that it's talking about the death of Christ as being something that was part of the foreknowledge of God. The only way that I could be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth is that God planned the death of Christ before the foundation of the earth, before Genesis 1 took place. So that means this. Everything that took place in Eden, all right, the serpent, Eve, the tree, the fall, curse of sin, the poison. You know, that, that didn't catch God out. That wasn't unexpected from God's point of view. And it wasn't as if, you know, a plan B had to be drawn up and say, well, we were planning to go down this road, but now this has happened, so let's just change things a bit and we'll have another route. Not at all. Before the foundation of the earth, Christ was determined to die. It was predetermined. And so that is why before the foundation of the earth, I could be placed in Christ. It's on the basis of his work. So, I mean, just to give us again another kind of sense of this, um, if you would turn, for instance, to Ezekiel chapter 28. This, this, is, this is before the foundation of the earth, this chapter. At one level, it talks about, it's referring to a king, King Cyrus, the prince of Tyre. You can see that at the start of the chapter. But this is a reference to Satan. All right? Before the world was created. So let me just read part of it. Verse number 13 of Ezekiel 28. You, you were in Eden. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering talks about the, the various stones there. Verse 14, You were an anointed guardian cherub, guardian angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16, So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. 
Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. This is the fall of Satan. This is Lucifer before the foundation of the earth. And Eden is the place where it's all played out and things develop. God knows all this. So finally, let's come to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Now, interesting, depending on what translation you have, there is a little change in this. Let me just point some of this out to you. I'm reading from the ESV. This is talking about future time when the Antichrist will be worshipped. Verse 8 of Revelation 3 All who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. Got it? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now if you have an authorized version, if you have a New King James version, If you have a new international version, it reads differently. And um, the way it reads there is it talks about the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the earth. The emphasis is not on the book of life, but it's on the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the earth. Now, there is a sense in which it's almost irrelevant because you know you can't have your name written in the book of life from before the foundation of the earth unless there was the plan for the lamb to be slain from before the foundation of the earth. But I make this point. Remarkable, isn't it? As far as the great purposes of God are concerned, as we look into the pages of Scripture, And along with those that walked on the way to Emmaus, you know, it's open to us. And just on this one little part of the subject, as I say, in the first few meters of the journey, they're just starting on at Genesis chapter 1. And Christ is opening the whole thing up so that they can see where he is there, so that their hearts are not despondent, but rather their hearts are lifted up with joy and their hearts burn within them with a sense of the greatness of God. Here is this one point for us to consider tonight. Christ slain from before the foundation of the earth for us. Oh, the grandeur, oh, the immensity of the purposes of God that we are brought into as being a part of. You know, the gospel is a marvelous thing. You know, we need to say it more than just a little system of belief. The, The greatness of all of this, and it all hinges on our Lord Jesus Christ and on his cross. You know, that is why, you know, we need to be very strong on our teaching about the cross of Christ. We must never allow it to be diluted or the importance of it diminished in any sort of way at all. It's the very heart and soul of the gospel. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then entered into his glory? As I was kind of preparing during the course of the week for this message, um, I caught uh, five minutes or so between patients in the surgery. 
And uh, I, have a, I have a couple of Bibles in the, in, the, in, the, in the surgery. One of them is an old Schofield reference Bible, authorized version, all right? And uh, I, was, I was looking up a couple of the verses, and as I opened it up, I, have, I, just, I was just reminded again, I looked, I looked at the, the, the start of the, of the Bible, and it, uh, it said, uh, to Angela on your 16th birthday. So it's quite an old, <laughs> quite an old Bible. And uh, I had put, put a little thing in it there. And this, this, this is what it said. Um, it said, if I can remember it now, uh, it said, uh, where is my, Behold the book. Behold the book whose leaves display Jesus, the life, the truth, the way. Read it with diligence and care. Read it. You'll find him there. That's what we're trying to do in this series, is to find Christ in all the scriptures so that our hearts might burn within us. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the wonderful person of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great creator of everything, Things were created not only by him, but through him and for him. And so, Lord, as we, as we think about his greatness and creation today, slain from before the foundation of the earth for us, Lord, may our hearts burn with worship towards Christ. Not to be cold, but to burn with worship towards Christ and realize that we were made for him. So help us to do that this week as we ask in his name. Amen.